Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. People live in a world of their own making. Frankly, that seems to be the problem. Welcome to Angry Planet. Hello, and welcome to Angry Planet. I'm Matthew Galt. And I'm Jason Fields. Today, it's all about the bomb. Nuclear weapons are back in a big way, and everything about the Cold War suddenly feels very fresh. Nukes are strange. They've only been used twice, and the language and knowledge around them can often feel arcane, almost religious. There's all these little rituals in the nuclear space. Today, we're going to talk about one of those rituals, the Nuclear Posture Review. Once in every presidential administration, the nuclear curtain is withdrawn, and we get a glimpse at what the Pentagon and, critically, the president is thinking. But what is the Nuclear Posture Review? Who writes it? And what does it have to do with the price of gas in an apocalyptic hellscape? Well, here with some answers to some of the questions is Stephen Young. Young is the senior Washington representative for the Union of Concerned Scientists. He is also the former deputy director of the Coalition to Reduce Nuclear Dangers. And he consulted on this most recent nuclear posture review. Sir, thank you so much for coming onto the show and walking us through some of this. I'm happy to be here. And so before we get to the NPR, um, which always messes me up when I say it aloud, because uh, we're talking about the review and not the uh, radio station. Um, but before we get to the review, uh, I'm glad we have you here today because there is some nuclear news and it seems like it might be positive. Uh, have you seen this, the the Russia Russia and the United States talking again under New Start? Can you tell us what's going on there? Uh, so... New START, the last remaining treaty between the U.S. and Russia on weapons issues, limits both countries to about 1,550 deployed nuclear weapons. Every other treaty between the two has been abandoned by the U.S. or cheated on by Russia, leading to the U.S. abandoning it. Uh, but we do have this one treaty left. Uh, however, um, uh, as a part of the Ukraine war, um, the U.S., uh, well, because of COVID initially, the U.S. and Russia both stopped doing on-site inspections under the treaty, which are allowed an important part of verifying both countries are abiding by it, and they both were and seem to be still are. Uh, but uh, those those were jointly agreed to be on hold because of COVID. But recently, the U.S. announced it wanted to resume inspections uh, because COVID is, is mostly in hiatus, more or less, uh, and they decided now is the time to start doing 
on-site, as I say, boots on the ground in Russia, U.S. military boots on the ground in Russia, looking at Russian weapon systems. It's a very valuable part of the treaty. And Russia said, uh, no, not so much, um, which is a problem. That's not how treaties are supposed to work. Uh, and so they have agreed now to meet to discuss this and related issues in the treaty of how they can resolve uh, the question of will they return to on-site inspections. So it's good news indeed. Uh, it needs to happen. Uh, it is. There's no reason it shouldn't happen. Russia is, of course, in a nightmare in so many ways because of their the war in Ukraine. But that shouldn't stop them from allowing U.S. troops on the ground because they can have Russian troops come here on the ground as well. So it's fair, fair for you, fair for me. So it sounds like that is at least they're talking about that all getting back on track. It's kind of yeah. the broad headline, which is good. Indeed. Okay, well, let's switch to our main now that we've gotten the news out of the way. What is the Nuclear Posture Review? Excellent question. Uh, it is nominally every administration since President Clinton in 1994 has done a Nuclear Posture Review that is that administration's examination of what will be their nuclear policies in terms of how many do we need, what are they for, why do we have them? When would we use them? Uh, who might use them against? Those are all things considered in nuclear posture review. Uh, a couple of them have been mandated by Congress, but generally each administration has done it on its, its own volition. Um, uh, the last one done by Biden was of its own volition. It just decided to do one because it wanted to affect the policy. Um, they are, have always been led by the Pentagon. Uh, they have... It's been various states involved, Department of State and Energy and the White House in those processes. But they always have been led by the Pentagon in a process that takes six months to 18 months, depending on how slow they take it. Um, uh, and they are generally, to date, totally a failure. They have again and again endorsed the current nuclear policy, practice, and posture. There have been some changes for sure. They have led to reductions in the overall stockpile, which is very valuable. But they've led to almost no changes in why we have them, when we would use them, what they're for, or how we posture them. Uh, and that is, in my view, a problem. We shouldn't be still in the Cold War frame we were in when we got, got in this whole mess. What does success mean if this is failure? Uh, so in my view, success would mean that we move away from this Cold War lockdown we're in. We still have weapons on hair trigger or prompt launch alert ready to be fired in minutes. There's no, just no need for that. Russia's not going to do a surprise attack out of the blue to try and destroy us. That would be suicide because we have subs at sea they can't destroy. Yet we still maintain hundreds and hundreds of weapons on alert ready to fire in two minutes. President issues an order, boom, they're gone. Why? There's just no need for that at all. It's senseless risk. Um, similarly, we still have the president's sole authority. The president himself makes one phone call, and they're gone. Why? There's no need for that. And if you get the power to President Trump, who knows? I mean, it's just the risk is simply too great, in my view. You should change it and say, no, if you want to launch nukes, you need people to agree with you. It's a good idea. And in fact, this has been a problem. And we know that under Nixon, when Nixon was drunk and bumbling and upset, uh, the, the head of his 
defense department said, if he orders an issue order, please call me first. Uh, he didn't, they didn't, military didn't have to do that, but he was, he asked, please call me first. Um, happened again with Trump after January 6th. General Milley told the military commanders, if Trump issues an order, call me first. But again, it was his request. It's not how system's supposed to work. So it's just, it's just a problem we should change. But these reviews have never done that. They've always endorsed the current system pretty much across the board. Can you take us back to the Clinton administration and tell us about how all of this began and, and, and how it got co-opted, what we know anyway? Sure. So uh, 1993, Clinton came to office. The Cold War had ended. Uh, the Soviet Union was in collapse and it had dissolved. And Russia was um, struggling to survive. Uh, uh, but we knew that, um, that, that they were open to change. And so uh, President Clinton, led by his Secretary of Defense, Les Aspen, decided now was the time to um, look at these policies again in great detail uh, and consider major changes in all the questions I just talked about of why do we have them, what are they for, how many do we need. Um, unfortunately, he actually passed away. Uh, and his leadership in the project uh, failed. Uh, those who were implementing it felt that the others in the Pentagon who were the traditional nuclear um, warriors. And the end document basically decided, you know, we're all pretty good here. We'll have a hedge policy. We'll make some cuts in the size of the stockpile we have deployed, but we're going to keep the ones we're taking off hedge in reserve. Everything else stays the same. So no change in how we, how, how we posture them and how alert they are, which, or who the targets are. Just We're going to just kick them off alert, but we're going to keep them around just in case as a hedge policy. And that was the major change in 94 was, oh, we'll just have a hedge, which was a cop-out. But that's what the military felt comfortable with. They liked the status quo. So they chose to have a hedge. Is there any way – you've been in this space for decades – how do we push back against, because it's kind of the same story over and over again from my view. And please tell me if I'm wrong. I know you will. Um, that there's kind of this entrenched nuclear bureaucracy that's attached to the military that keeps perpetuating the, the status quo, the old cold war status quo. We keep having these weapons, even though we don't necessarily need them. We certainly don't need say like ICBMs anymore. As you said, we've got the submarines just kind of covers a lot of bases, right? Um, how do we fight back against this? How do politicians fight back against this and win? A great question. And I think the answer is the answer I have right now uh, that I am trying to make the case for is that the U.S. should conclude because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine and the nuclear threats that Putin issued with those with that invasion, as well as the decision China has made to greatly increase its nuclear stockpile, um, which is, is basically not done it for decades. So China's been in the business for decades, but it has a very small arsenal up until recently. It has now decided, okay, small isn't good enough anymore. We need a much bigger arsenal. It'll still be smaller than the U.S. and Russian arsenals, but it'll increase significantly from roughly 300 to maybe 1,000 warheads, according to DOD. Nobody knows for sure. Versus how many America? How many does America and, the, and Russia have? We have fifteen hundred fifty deployed. Another two thousand or so in reserve. So three times more than Russia, the China might have if they do this full expansion. 
So we still have far more than China will have. But still, it's a troubling new sign. China has changed its decision on what it requires for nuclear deterrence purposes. In my view, in that world, it is now simply too risky. We cannot keep relying on a world in which nuclear threat is what is needed for stability and deterrence. Uh, the, the fact that Russia, even if Russia loses the war in Ukraine, they will retain the ability to do the same thing all over again. Start a conventional war, issue nuclear threats, and do what they want, and, they will, and we will be deterred by them. It's not a world any of us should want to live in. And so my argument to the military is that the U.S. should conclude, we kind of agree. This threat is no longer in our interests. We have the conventional might required to keep us and our allies safe without nuclear weapons. The, and we should try to get into that world. It's a very hard case to make. Uh, it's easy to make the case for Russia. It's harder for China because China is not Russia. China has a massive economy and is building a massive military. Um, but we will not be able to solve any of those problems without China going forward, climate change or anything else, without working with China. And so my proposition is that we're better off in a world without nuclear weapons than we are with one. Uh, that is, however, a heavy lift. The military is very wedded to these weapons. There also is the money factor, where we spend tens of billions of dollars every year on nuclear weapons. And there's a lot of support in the whole DC blob of contractors, government officials, politicians, and the like, who are invested in the system as it is now. So that's the challenge I face right now every day, is I actually don't know how can we change this. What's the tipping point for moving away from the system in the long run? For me right now, it is risk. The risk is higher than it's been. It's now too high. We should move away. But it's not clear that will be enough to make the change we need to make, in my view. Would we consider doing this alone? I mean, we're barely thinking of considering this in the first place, <laughs> but how do you do it? How do you be first? So the, the proposal that's been made a number of times, I think has some benefits, is the U.S. wouldn't unilaterally disarm entirely, but just say, cut 100 off the top. We'll just, okay, we have, we're allowed by treaty to have 350 weapons deployed. We will certify we only have 1450 now. You can come verify that. Come look. And invite China to come look as well. China, Russia, come look and see. We have now fewer deployed. If you do more, we'll do more. You can do this informally, but verify it formally. That system, I think, is one possibility of unilateral many steps. Uh, it's feasible. It's doable. It's verifiable, at least with Russia. Uh, and I think it's worth thinking about. Um, but no, there's no world in which it's possible the U.S. is going to say, okay, we're getting rid of all of our nukes. We don't need them at all. We're just going to drop them entirely. That's just not viable. But the idea of a step-by-step -step approach, to me, is at least worth considering. And also sometimes politicians are the problem, right? It's not always the military here. And this is one of the reasons we're talking today is because I wrote something about the nuclear posture review uh, for Vice, and I screwed something up. And, and you and you called me on it, and I and I updated the piece um, because the, the 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 NPR at a surface level is not all bad. We're getting rid of the gravity bomb. Uh, we want to get rid of the sea launched cruise missile, or at least the military does. 
Uh, can you tell us what the gravity bomb is, why we're getting rid of it, and what's the what is the sea-launched cruise missile? Do we need it? Who wants it? Who doesn't? All that stuff. Sure. So the gravity bomb in question is called the B-83. It is by far the largest, most destructive weapon in the U.S. nuclear stockpile. Its yield is what we call 1.2 megatons of TNT equivalent. So for comparison, the gravity, the bomb dropped on Hiroshima was about 12, um, 12 to 15 kilotons of TNT equivalent. So the B-83 is roughly 80 times more powerful than the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. So imagine a bomb that killed 100,000 people in an hour, 180 times larger than that. It was just, it's massively destructive. Its only purpose currently for the U.S. is to attempt to attack deeply buried targets, primarily in North Korea, um, because there's seen a need for that. But the reality is if we drop it on North Korea, it'll fall out on South Korea and cause havoc across the whole region. So you have a weapon you actually don't want to use. You're reserving in case you might want to attack a buried facility in a country you can destroy otherwise. It's just nonsense to me. And so the the Obama administration had already committed to retiring the B-83 back in 2012 when it did did its nuclear posture review. Uh, But the Trump administration reversed that decision and decided to keep it around uh, indefinitely. And the Biden administration has now, again, decided in its nuclear posture review, no, we're going to retire it. And we believe they will do so before they leave office, or at least have a plan to do that before they leave office. They have, there's no timeline yet for when this BD3 will be retired, but it's firmly in the plan. And there's currently only limited resistance from Congress to having that move forward. So I think it's likely it will happen in the next three to five years. The other system that's in the nuclear posture review uh, that calls for getting rid of it is this so-called sea-launched nuclear-armed cruise missile. Again, something that the uh, Trump administration proposed. It's a new system. Uh, Obama uh, retired the last version of this. Actually, President Bush I pulled off the Navy ships in the 1990s. We haven't, this hasn't been deployed for decades. Obama actually retired it in his nuclear posture review informally. And we haven't had it and haven't needed it um, since the, that period. The Trump team wanted to rebuild it because, in their view, they want more so-called low-yield or low-yield systems designed basically for nuclear war fighting. That's what this is designed for, is to fight a nuclear war at low levels. Again, a stupid idea. Uh, the Biden administration said, no, we don't want this. We're going we're to cancel that program and not move forward with it. However, while the Navy agrees with that decision. There are some in the military who don't agree with it. And unfortunately, they testified before Congress in support of this sea-launched cruise missile, uh, even though they not only had signed off on the posture review calling for it to be canceled, they testified to Congress saying, we kind of like the idea still. We think we might want to have it as an option. And as a direct result of that, Democrats, who control at present the House and Senate, got a little nervous and said, well, just to be sure, let's go ahead and give some money to this program for now. So that the, both the House and Senate have given a small amount of funding for R&D toward developing this cruise missile that the Biden administration itself says it's going to cancel. 
So this is actually pretty rare where uh, Congress funds a new system that the administration says it doesn't want. Little, little time for planes and things we are building. They build more of those. It's good for my district. It's pork. That happens a lot. But a new system that hasn't been developed at all, this is a new phenomenon that I haven't seen before. And I don't know how it will play out. I'm pretty sure the Biden team, when it puts its budget request in next year, will again ask for no money for this program. The Congress may give it money again, and they'll be forced to spend it somehow. But it's a long fight. It's a long way off from being deployed or to build. So it's going to, I will keep fighting against it. We'll see how it plays out, but it's not decided yet. Now, the, this is not the only new, newish thing. Well, maybe new is a misnomer. Uh, just gonna, going back to the Trump administration and his 2018 nuclear posture review, can you tell us about the W93? So W93 is one of the two new things, other two additional new things pushed in the Trump nuclear posture review. W93 would be the first all-new nuclear warhead built by the United States since the end of the Cold War. We have been very carefully maintaining and upgrading our existing nuclear weapons over the last decades and spending tens of billions of dollars to do that. Uh, But there is now a call for the first time for an all-new warhead um, to be put on our sub-based missiles. Uh, And that proposal is still being supported by the Biden administration. Uh, I think it's uncalled for, unnecessary, and uh, contributes to the building arm race. And I think it is still a long way off, so it still could be canceled by Congress itself, because it will cost a lot of money to do this, um, and will require the U.S. to make new plutonium pits, which is basically the fissile core of a nuclear weapon. We haven't made those in bulk since the end of the Cold War, um, because we did have needed them. We, we, the factory to make them was actually shut down by the FBI in 1989 because it was a, a terrible environmental catastrophe. The FBI and the EPA literally invaded the factory and shut it down um, because it was such an environmental nightmare. And that stopped pit production uh, in the U.S. And we've only made a few handful of pits since then at our weapons labs. But now the proposal is to resume that production uh, in part to make these new W93 warheads. What's the point of the warheads? Is are they bigger? Um, yeah, so, I'll, I'll notice you didn't use the words low yield in your explanation. Yeah, so, so the 93 warhead might be lower yield. It wouldn't be low yield. So actually, that the, just briefly that the brief sidebar, the Trump team actually did deploy very rapidly. One new warhead called the W76-2 warhead, which basically was they took an existing warhead uh, and made it a low yield variant by taking out the secondary of that nuclear bomb. So modern nuclear bombs have two parts: a primary initiates the explosion, and secondary that makes the big boom go big. Um, and so the initial atomic bombs were only primaries dropped on Hiroshima were only a, only initial one bomb. But new weapons are much more powerful because they have two bombs in one. The 76-2 that the Trump administration proposed, developed, and deployed has a small yield by actually taking out secondary entirely and just having only the primary bomb go off. So that actually is in, the, in stockpile, uh, and the Biden NPR endorses it and says we're keeping it around, at least for now. It's a valuable new tool for basically nuclear warfighting. 
um, the, the pits that we're talking about or why we have new warheads in general, what they tell you is they want to increase safety and security of the stockpile to have the warheads be safer and more secure, less likely to go off by accident. The reality is they want improved performance, better targeting ability, um, better uh, control of when it goes off at altitude, um, basically more effective uh, and as a warfighting tool. And they, they also will add safety and security measures as well. But the bottom line is they want to have a more capable weapon in the stockpile. And they will make it more capable in various ways that they think are important. It's interesting to me that you're talking about a more, a better weapon when we've always been told, or I've always been raised with the idea that nuclear weapons are like horseshoes, hand grenades, and nuclear bombs, right? I mean, get it close enough, let it go. Did not ever think of it as a precision weapon. Should I be thinking of it that way? So that's, in my view, no. I think you're using the correct view. That basically, what the goal of nuclear weapons is to deter nuclear war. You want to stop your possible enemy from doing things they shouldn't be doing, primarily, however, in the nuclear front. Uh, if you use them for deterring conventional attacks, then you risk them deciding, oh, this is so dangerous, I'm going to go nuclear first and start their own nuclear war because they're worried about you going nuclear on them. That's what I believe the role of nukes should be, but I am not the decision maker. The military has decided in its infinite wisdom that we need nukes to deter everything up and down the spectrum, and we need to have the ability to have small wars or big wars, little, little nuclear bombs and big nuclear bombs. We need to be able to attack quickly or slowly. We need to be able to attack from the sea or from the air or from the land. Be able to attack in theater or out of theater. These are all requirements in the current defense posture that to me are nonsense. You can deter them by saying, if you do something I don't like, I will kill you. That's Luke's reform. But the theory the military has is no, we have to deter this and that and this other thing too, because just in case, you never know. In my mind, that's a mistake, but that's not the current posture. I don't make the decisions right now. All right, Angry Planet listeners, we're going to pause there for a break. We'll be right back after this. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. All right, Angry Planet listeners, thank you for sticking around. We are back on with Stephen Young from the Union of Concerned Scientists talking about the, the, the nuclear posture review. <laughs> I got there. I got there. So you kind of hit on something I really want to dive into here. Um, you called this a terrifying document. 
Um, I talked to a couple different nuclear experts uh, who also found it very disturbing. Um, Emma Claire Foley, who's been on the show before, uh, really highlighted for me when I talked to her the idea that there's language in this thing that I wouldn't say directly. They're making plans for the use of battlefield nukes, I guess is the way I would use it. They're making use, they're making plans for what the world would look like if there is a quote unquote tactical nuclear weapon. Um, can you talk about what that is? What is a tactical nuclear weapon? Or at least what does the Pentagon say a tactical, tactical nuclear weapon is? Um, and do you think that the stuff that's going on with Russia like plays into that fear and how? Sure. So there's much debate over what a tactical weapon is. The general rule of thumb is they are generally lower yield and generally designed for battlefield use as opposed to strategic nuclear weapons that are designed for long-yield use to attack Russia from the U.S., as opposed to in Europe, in the middle of a war in Ukraine, dropping a bomb on the middle of a battle to try and defeat your military forces. Um, That is generally the role for tactical nuclear weapons, whereas strategic weapons are designed to defeat the enemy all in one go by destroying them. That's sort of the approach. But the reality is a nuke is a nuke is a nuke. And once you have used a tactical nuke, you've opened that opened that Pandora's box and the possibility of unlimited nuclear warfare just literally blows up. Um, so that is, um, in my view, again, a mistaken approach. What you need to make very clear to your adversary is that if you use nuclear weapons, you will pay costs you don't want to pay. That doesn't need to be in the same battlefield, in the same place. It just needs to be clear. You will pay costs you don't want to pay. And that will deter them. The, The military fear is that, oh, but if they just use a really teeny nuke and all we have is Big nukes, we won't, they wouldn't believe we'll use a big nuke in response to their teeny nuke. To which I say, well, then make them believe you will, because you can. But it is, there is a tension there that you can't deny. But the reality, in my view, is Russia should not be confident they can ever keep a nuclear war limited. And therefore, they shouldn't do it. And nor should the U.S., because you can't have confidence. We've never fought a nuclear war. They've been used in war once against a non-nuclear opponent, but no nuclear war has been fought. So no one knows what will happen. So let's just not try it and not find out. uh, I'll ask the question that's on everyone's mind that there are no fair answers to. Um, Do you think, what do you think about Putin's, nuclear saber rattling do you think he would ever use a battlefield nuke i think it's still unlikely highly unlikely but that the risk is far higher than we want it to be it is now the realm of the possible i i would say again it's five percent chance maybe that's still way more than i'd like it to be 
And the scenario for me that I worry about is that Putin would say, blow up a small so-called tactical bomb over the Black Sea, kill no one at all, have it be relatively low yield, and then say to NATO, NATO, if you don't stop arming Ukraine, I will do worse. Your choice. And then we're in a bit of a bind. I think the answer is ignore it and go forward and keep supporting Ukraine. But that then pressures Putin to escalate again. Let me ask you, let me switch tracks here just a little bit. You consulted on this, right? You, I hazard to say, well, let me, what is the process of working on the posture review like? What's the communication like when you're a consultant for this thing? So I was a, a, basically the Pentagon for this review had a series of um, fora in which they invited outside experts to speak uh, and a few more to listen in and ask questions and discuss. And so I was a discussant in one of those forum. I think they had about uh, four, six of those forum during the posture review and basically, they were, they were getting outside views from uh, people who were across the full spectrum of views. So it was basically, there were people from the far right and the far left in this room uh, who were listening to experts give their take on some questions that the NPR was looking at. And I was simply invited into that space to be a discussant among one of those hearings. I found it to be pretty unhelpful, frankly. Uh, the discussion was pretty limited. Um, and the um, the uh, views the NPR was trying, trying to, to take on weren't the key questions in my mind, but it was still helpful to be, to have a better sense of what they're looking at and how they were thinking about the issues. Uh, for example, one thing I did learn in the process was that um, they did look very closely at the question of should the U.S. declare a no first use nuclear policy, the idea the U.S. would never start a nuclear war, which is a policy I support, is not U.S. policy. U.S. policy is we can start a nuclear war if we want to, if we meet certain criteria of an extreme threat to the United States uh, from another nuclear armed state, which is the current policy has been that policy more or less for decades. Um, I think the U.S. should make clear we don't intend to have uh, a first use ever because there's no scenarios that that would be helpful to us. But that's not our policy. We looked at that policy in this NPR and decided, no, not going there, not going to do that, despite the fact President President Biden himself has said he wanted to go there. And President Biden himself personally supported that policy. But he decided in the end to not do it and to simply keep the current U.S. policy more or less as it was. They didn't, in the NPR, however, look at all at the president's sole authority to launch a nuclear strike. There's no consideration of that at all. Never even crossed their minds to say, let's just have a look at this issue. Given President Trump and his nuclear threats and his instabilities that we're all, all too well aware of, I think it's an issue worth considering. The NPR didn't even bring it up. It wasn't, it wasn't on the plate at all. And so I worry about things like that, of how this is the problem you have when you're asking the zookeepers how they want to run the zoo. I have a question about that single point, the president. One of the, the 
pieces that I've read basically said that there's 11 minutes from the launch of nuclear missiles in Russia to decide whether or not to launch our missiles. Is First of all, is that right? And second of all, how do you consult with people in that period of time? So good question. It's not quite right. The reality is after the launch of a Russian or Chinese missile or North Korean missile, it takes a period of five to 10 minutes to confirm that missile is coming in towards us and a few more to realize, okay, we know what the threat is. We have it analyzed enough to give the president uh, a heads up and say, okay, before it goes off, you now have roughly 10 minutes or so before they'll hit the U.S. And do you want to launch before that happens? Uh, and that is a scenario where, yeah, it is a terrifying scenario. Uh, the current system allows only the president to weigh in uh, in that question. And he, all he so far, would have to decide, do I want to ride it out and wait and see if they actually are coming or not, if this isn't a fault from the radars, which has happened in the past. We've had faulty alerts in the past, for sure, more, more than one occasion. Or do I want to ride it out and see, then respond? I think um, the if, if the president wants to launch before they arrive, they have about 10 minutes to make that order. And once the issue order is issued, it'll launch in less than five minutes. They make a phone call, they give a code, they confirm who the president is, the orders issued out to the silos in the Midwest of the country, and they're off in less than five minutes. So the system is designed to be very fast uh, to respond to that. There's roughly, there's roughly a half hour from missile launch to missile impact across the U.S. if you're launching ICBMs from land-based missiles. Both the U.S. and Russia have subs. They can actually be closer, though. Those can be as little as 20 minutes. So you can have even less time for a sub-based launch. And the U.S. can actually do um, low trajectory launches that are very low in the sky and harder to spot. So Russia actually might have very little warning, the U.S. attack, um, in fact. So it's a, a very time-compressed system. However, the reason we think we can still add in people to that system to make sure if you do want to have that consultation, we believe we actually know for a fact that FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management um, Agency, already tracks the Vice President and Speaker of the House full-time, the same way they track the President. Both actually also have their own nuclear, nuclear satchels, nuclear footballs. You actually see in January 6th attack on the Capitol, you can see Pence running out with football following him behind, being carried by a military officer. So he has it as well. So if it's, that's already there, he already can be in the loop. He already can have the vice president and speaker of the house, who also has a satchel, we believe, in the loop in minutes, the same way you have the president in the loop. So there is the ability to have more people in the room if you wanted to do that. And it could be a wise choice to do, given the realities we already know. So your Twitter bio says, and audience, I'm so sorry for once again bringing up Twitter. Um, your Twitter bio says that the length of the nuclear launch code is the same as a tweet. I know that things have been upgraded, uh, the way they print the nuclear launch codes now. Do we know if that is still true? 
So yeah, so the 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 code for generating nuclear launch codes has been upgraded. Yes, I saw that story as well, um, and I do not know. I would assume that the system to generate the codes doesn't impact the system used to launch the missiles, which requires a certain code. But I have not confirmed that question, so I will try and see if I can answer that question. Um, but yes, you are correct. They recently changed the system to generate the codes, the launch codes. But I do not, to my knowledge, they have not changed the system to actually launch the missiles at all. Um, the system has been upgraded over the years, but not recently enough to have this recent change impact that, I don't think. But I could, I will, good question. I will look into that. I have an off-the-wall question because I've watched Dr. Strangelove far too many times. Uh has anyone ever seriously considered an automated response to a nuclear attack, a la the doomsday weapon? Sure. Russia built one. Mm-hmm. Um, an amazing. See what I don't know. <laughs> yes. A great book uh, called Dead Hand, written by Washington Post reporter um, David Hoffman. Hoppy, you hush. What are you bucking at? Um uh, it's basically, it goes into great detail about the system Russia used or installed that was a dead hand system that would allow Russia to, if the system detected a launch by the U.S., to launch some missiles without anybody else issuing, issuing an order. It's pretty terrifying. It's not clear how much authority it was given. Like, was it fully in place? And it just happened and nobody was there. People were there, but not dead, but still it could launch. We don't know for a fact, but in some level, the system was installed by Russia uh, and is a very terrifying thing to think about. I think that's the kind of frightening uh, possibility that we like to go out here on Angry Planet. Stephen Young, thank you so much for coming on to Angry Planet and walking us through this. Where can people find your stuff? I am at the Union Extern Scientists. Twitter handle is uh, Stephen UCS. And if you just go to the UCSUSA.org website, I'm there as well with all my publications. That's all for this week, Angry Planet listeners. As always, Angry Planet is me, Matthew Galt, Jason Fields, and Kevin O'Dell. It's created by myself and Jason Fields. If you like the show, if you really like us, please kick us $9 a month on Substack. Go to angryplanet.pod.com, angryplanet.substack.com, where you can get uh, early access and commercial-free access to all the mainline episodes and the occasional bonus episode and some other premium content. We will be back next week with another conversation about conflict on an angry planet. Please stay safe until then. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.